Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Do you ever have that feeling that no matter what you do, it's just not going to be good enough to satisfy somebody? That no matter how hard you try, or even how much you accomplish, it's not going to matter to them. Maybe they'll think that you didn't do enough. Maybe they'll think that you didn't do it right. Maybe they'll just simply think that you didn't do it the way that they would have done it. I'm sure you've all had that sort of experience at one time or another during your lives, probably even many times. It might have been a parent who had unreasonably high expectations that always seemed a bit higher than you could possibly achieve. Maybe it was some particularly tough teacher at some point in your schooling. Or maybe more recently, it's been a very difficult supervisor or manager someplace where you work. It could have even been a spouse or a child or someone else who's close to you. Someone that you might hope would be reasonable and tolerant and have a certain understanding that you couldn't do everything perfectly right when they wanted it done. And I bet if you'll look hard enough and think back far enough and even if you open your heart up with enough honesty and courage, you probably will even come up with a time or two that you were the overly demanding one. Maybe you didn't think so at the time. You probably thought that you were being completely reasonable. What you were asking wasn't impossible, it was just difficult. Maybe it caused someone to have to get outside of their comfort zone a little bit to try something that was a little bit out of character. It might have even been good for them in the long run, but they didn't think so at the time. On the other hand, maybe you were just being difficult. Maybe you secretly hoped that that person would fail so that you could lord it over them, make them squirm a little bit under the pressure that you were applying, show them who was in control of the situation, or at least give that illusion to yourself for a little while. We've all had it done to us. Someone's been demanding of you in spite of all that you've done for them. And you've done it to others too. You've been demanding of them regardless of how much they've done for you. Come on. You know it's true. Admit it. Well, yeah, that's right. We already did admit it. Back at the beginning of our service when we confessed our sins of thought, word, and deed. But wait a minute, you say. Didn't I confess my sins to God back then? My sins against Him? Being overly demanding of others, that's talking about sins against my neighbor, isn't it? Well, yes, you're right in a sense. We did confess to God that we had sinned against Him in thought, word, and deed. But you're also wrong in another little sense. Because when you get right down to it, all sins, even those against our fellow human beings, are breaking the first commandment, the one that says, you shall have no other gods. That's because demanding someone else to do something for you, unless it's something God has commanded that they do for you, well, that's setting yourself up as God. And that's certainly breaking God's law. Here's an example. Even though he had caused great harm to many other people with his selfish demands and sins, 
David had it right when he wrote in Psalm 51, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Jesus was certainly no stranger to having demands placed upon him, was he? Demands to heal. Demands to speak. Demands for his time. Demands to tell people certain things that they wanted to know about. Demands to identify himself. To give answers about who he was and what he was doing and by whose authority he was doing them. In our gospel lesson for today, Jesus once again is faced with demands. First, there's a demand that he account for his whereabouts of the last several hours. Rabbi, when did you get here? To this question, Jesus gives no direct answer. He's not accountable to this crowd, is he? He'll let others answer the question, when did you get here? St. Paul answers it quite well, doesn't he, in chapter 4 of his letter to the Galatians. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive full rights as sons. Jesus knows why they're really looking for him, of course. He just fed more than 5,000 of them out of a boy's lunch of five barley loaves and two fish, and they'd all had plenty to eat. This Jesus fella, he's a pretty good meal ticket. Let's hang around with him. He'll make our lives a whole lot easier than working for a living. Jesus calls them out on it. You were looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. He quickly points out that they should not come to rely on this food which only temporarily satisfies their needs and then is gone. Instead, they ought to strive to obtain the more enduring gift. Do not work for food that spoils, he says, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. He offers to give, to freely give to them the food of eternal life. Yet they come up with another demand of Jesus, again demanding information. What must we do to do the works of God? That is, what does God require of us, Jesus? What's the bottom line here, God? We want eternal life. Who doesn't? There's got to be something special, some sort of a secret to receive such a tremendous blessing. The crowd hadn't heard Jesus clearly. They didn't catch that he had said, which the Son of Man will give you. We sometimes don't hear Jesus clearly either. We get demanding of him, and we expect him to be demanding of us as well. We sometimes doubt or question how and when and where and who he is and why he came to where we are. But when we get demanding of God, when we begin to question him and insist that he justify himself to us, we're treading on dangerous ground. He has every right at that point to bellow sarcastically back at us as God did to Job when he questioned his reasoning. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Tell me who marked off its dimensions. Surely you know. But Jesus doesn't berate the crowd 
in spite of their demands and in spite of their less than respectful tone. He doesn't place a huge list of demands on them, demands that would be impossible for them to follow, just as they're impossible for us to follow. He simply says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. It's as simple as that. Yet it is more profound than anything we could possibly come up with on our own, much less be able to perform. Jesus offers the key to eternal life, a simple key that requires nothing of us that God himself doesn't provide to us. Yet they still aren't satisfied. What miraculous sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? What? Jesus must have been thinking to himself. Are they kidding? What more do they need to see? Just in this sixth chapter of St. John's Gospel alone, we are told a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. And a short time later, after he had fed them all with the five loaves and two fish, we read, after the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. What more did they need to see? What more could possibly convince them that he was the one sent by God? It truly is, as St. Paul would write years later, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Like the crowds who tracked Jesus down because they had their own motives and their own demands, we sometimes demand miraculous signs too. Some spectacular event that gives us a strong, overwhelming feeling of God's presence or a direct communication that assures us that God truly is God and that we are truly saved. And sometimes we want wisdom. A savior who makes sense to us. One who gives us something that we can comprehend. One who will assign us a list of chores we can follow and we can complete so we can check off each one of them and say, there, got them all now. Now I'm sure that I'm saved. God doesn't work that way. He doesn't have to respond to our demands. And in spite of the fact that we can't possibly meet his demands, he comes to us anyway to meet our most pressing needs. He gives us our daily bread, the forgiveness of our trespasses, and the ability to forgive the trespasses against us. And yes, even the ability to be less demanding of others. He gives us strength to withstand not only that particular temptation, but all others, if we look to the cross of Jesus and trust in it alone. Jesus meets our every need, not with the miraculous signs that some demand, but with water and word that washes us clean and adopts us as his own. With the simple words, I forgive you all your sins. With simple bread and wine that convey the body and blood of Christ, the bread of God and the bread of life, the bread of life that came down from heaven and was given as life for the world. In Christ, God does not satisfy all your demands. Instead, he heals your deepest wounds, 
through the wounds that he suffered for you, the wounds that he willingly suffered, the wounds that should have been yours. Eventually, the crowd by the lake that day seems to realize what we so often fail to acknowledge, that we need more than the perishable bread that keeps us going from day to day, bread that will in time spoil and no longer satisfy. Finally, their tone becomes more respectful, more earnest and less demanding. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. No longer a demand, but a request, a plea, a change of heart from now on. To those that believe on his name, Jesus gives exactly that. From now on, wherever the church is, wherever the gospel is purely preached and the sacraments rightly administered, Jesus gives his people the bread of life, the forgiveness of your sins, the salvation of your immortal soul, and the eternal joys of heaven. Whether he is providing you his temporal gifts that sustain us physically, or the spiritual gifts that uplift us and keep us firm in the faith, none of the blessings that we receive from the Lord are because of our own doings. They are not the work of men any more than the food the Israelites received in the wilderness was the work of Moses. Instead, all of our blessings come down out of the generous hand of our Heavenly Father, who views us not as the ungrateful and demanding sinners that we are, but rather sees us with the righteousness of Christ. It was he who thanked his Father without fail. It was he who humbled himself in complete obedience. This, then, is the work of God, to believe in the one whom he has sent, the only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ, a crucified God may be a stumbling block to those who demand miraculous signs and foolishness to those who demand wisdom. But he is the power of God and the wisdom of God to save those who believe on his name. Let us not be demanding of God, lest he be demanding of us. Instead, come humbly, come thankfully to his altar this day to receive the food that endures to eternal life. Come to Christ and never hunger. Believe in Christ and never thirst. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.